and welcome to Back to Basics, Babies, Bodies and Behaviour. Unfortunately, Ulrika is unable to join us today, so it's just me, Mel, with our special guest, Dr. Henrik Norholt. So, I'm Mel from Carried, and I run baby wearing and in-arms carrying courses, and I'm the author of In-Arms Carrying and Clinging Young. Would you like to introduce yourself? I'd be happy to. Uh, yeah, so my name is Henrik Norholt. I, uh, I live in Copenhagen, and uh, I've held the position of the, being the chief science office, officer of a company called Ergo Baby and, uh, for the past nine years. And uh, the whole idea was actually more or less uh, conceived by the uh, father of the founder of Ergo Baby. Uh, his name was Professor, he was a professor uh, in international politics, uh, Robert Frost. And already at that time, back in, uh, that would have been 2009, uh, he saw a case for um, that if baby wearing was to be taken uh, beyond being a, sort of a specialized thing for, for some people, that it, it would need some kind of uh, a scientific case would need to have to be established. And uh, so that was with that in mind that he said, well, we, we are making enough money to support such initiatives, so we will take that upon us. So, um, so rather unusually for a, a company in, in this industry, they, they simply had somebody in my capacity uh, to, to, um, to equate myself with the existing uh, science related to baby wearing and also uh, to meet with the various medical communities that could have an interest in baby wearing. Um, and gave me a gave me time and gave me a big travel budget to do that. So uh, and what I have realized over the years is that you know not only is it quite unique for for an uh, industry player like a commercial company to have someone like me, but it's actually even in an academic sense it's quite unusual that uh, to have somebody who traverses so many different uh, professionals and and medical fields. Because um, normally, if you are a professor in psychology, you go to the psychology conferences. The only one I've really met who's who's been able to traverse all these disciplines is is actually Professor Sjöstin Übnes Moberg, who is sort of considered the the original, what you might say, the um, the original pioneer in in expanding uh, the research on on the role of oxytocin. And uh, because oxytocin uh, is, is involved in so many different, in psychological systems, in, in stress regulation, in lactation, in birth, she too has, has been to a very broad range of, of uh, scientific communities. Uh, yeah. So, um, so I mean, to, to, uh, to just enumerate the, the types of conferences I've been going to, uh, it would be, Midwifery has been quite uh, quite uh, prominent for me uh, because, of course, the midwives are important in in um, in supporting the parents in that early engagement in physical contact. So I've been to many of what's called the there's a triennial uh, international confederation of midwives conference, and also many regional conferences and even national conferences for midwives. And um, you know, um, one takeaway message there is that you know I'm I'm shocked at the level of obstetric violence that takes place in so many countries outside of perhaps predominantly the um, the, the northern European countries. Uh, but yeah, it's uh, yeah, and and it and it relates to baby uh, wearing uh, in the sense that you know if the if the birth is, is traumatizing and if too many things go wrong, and if these hormonal systems that program the mother to want to have physical contact, if they are uh, if they are disturbed too much through uh, traumatic births, where we don't have parents who uh, have a lot of uh, capacity to 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 carry their child, so so we certainly uh, there's a lot lot of uh, common interest with the midwifery community. Um, then. Um, I've been going to the uh, some of the lactation conferences, and that has been a big inspiration in seeing how that particular community has gone from being a an entirely mother to mother mother to mother support uh, community to now being a professional uh, 
a medical subspecialty with their own journal. And, you know, very impressive three, four-day conferences with uh, good academic speakers and, and keeping the uh, IBCLC's uh, international board-certified lactation consultants, keeping them up to date with, with what's the newest research. Um, yeah, that has been fascinating. Um, I've also been going to um, most uh, of the uh, attachment-oriented types of uh, psychology conferences. Obviously, psychology is a very diverse field. Mm -hmm. Uh, but again, uh, people tend to group in, in common interests. So um, there are especially two types of conferences I've been going to. One is the World Association of Infant Mental Health. They have a biennial conference around the world. I've been coming to them since 2010. And uh, another group is uh, it's called the Society for Emotion and Attachment Studies. And they organize an international attachment conference, uh, again, biennially. So they, they alternate between the so-called WAME and the, and the IAC conferences. But there you really get acquainted with, uh, you know, what's, what's the big wigs thinking? What are the approaches to intervention? What's the state of the art? Um, how is it going? How well do we do with the interventions that, that the community uh, thinks up and, and pilots and tests in, in randomized control trials? Um, yeah. And um, I've also been to one, uh, the, the European Pediatric Orthopedic uh, Conference. I haven't done a whole lot with that community, in part because I, how should we say, um, there was actually quite a lot of work done by, you know, Fedweiss and Evelyn Kirklionis in the early days about those aspects of hip and spinal health. So when I began, I found less of a need to, to really involve myself in that. Um, but... Uh, certainly for pediatric orth orthopedists, uh, hip dysplasia is uh, certainly one of the most common problems they encounter. And, uh, and they are aware that their current approaches, um, the diagnostic approach, they miss too many. And, and even if they are able to catch them early enough, they, the current approaches to, to solving it uh, doesn't work in 100% of cases. So uh, Charles Price, the... Um, the leader of the International Hip Dysplasia Institute has uh, actually wrote an article in 2012 when he said, really, we should uh, we should try to achieve universal prevention of hip dysplasia by placing the child in the spread squat position. So um, actually, we have very strong uh, common viewpoint with the, with the leading pediatric orthopedists. And, and we are increasingly building institutional ties to that world. So that's been that's also been interesting. And, and the, the last group, uh, which, um, which I think is very important in, in, in many contexts, is the pediatric community. I've not really had a lot to do with uh, pediatrics outside of the U.S. I've been coming, frankly, primarily to the uh, American Academy of Pediatrics Conferences since 2010, I believe. And I've seen this incredible development where... Uh, through the work of um, of Felity and and Ander, where they highlighted um, how early trauma exposure, how that predicts so many adverse outcomes, in terms of how people behave towards the health, overeating, smoking, drug use, um, but also how it programs uh, stress adaptation, social emotional skills, your capacity to take an education and maintain a job your sexual behavior, your, the timing of your pregnancies, and all these things. That has fundamentally um, impressed and, and influenced the American Academy of Pediatrics. So, uh, and they see now that um, the strongest prophylaxis towards, uh, she would say, an unfortunate childhood uh, is actually just having uh, at least just one supportive and empathic relationship with an adult caregiver which then takes uh, one of the latest conferences I attended was in Chicago. And, and the lead speaker there was uh, after the president's address was a psychologist who spoke about attachment and nurturance. We get the job done uh, was the title of the, of her, of her speech. And I would have, I would have never believed that when I started coming in the pediatric community that they would ever take, so to speak, this soft science of, of attachment seriously, but that's really happening. And, um, 
So, I mean, should we say some of them, you know, to, what are the key learnings I've had over the past uh, nine years working for Logo Baby? Um, I would say that, um, you know, baby wearing uh, as an emerging profession uh, is growing up in a context. And, and, um, and one of the things that we claim to be good at and which the science actually supports uh, to some degree is that this early contact seems to predict that children have, uh, have a better capacity to engage uh, emp emp empathically and, and um, with, with others. And, um, and that's now, that's really what the, the pediatric community, they're looking for, uh, yeah, frankly, uh, low cost mm -hmm. um, and scalable interventions. And I think uh, to the degree that we are able to make a case for that, uh, as, as a community, as baby wearing consultants, uh, we have a strong chance of putting ourselves on the map with the pediatric community. So that's, that's one learning. The other one is, and it's not, it's not to belittle the incredible and dedicated amount of work that has been done in the infant mental health community, uh, but the current approaches that they have, to, to my mind, uh, they, they don't seem to be low cost because they're quite uh, manpower intensive. And, and um, compared to being able to help parents engage in physical contact, I, I think they are probably much more resource demanding than, than so to speak, our approach. And um, yeah, so it's not like, you know, that there is, a, you know, the, the, you have the pediatric community being aware that relationships are key and, and regrettably we don't have then a psychological community saying, here is the solution. We've already worked it out. No, we, we see a, a community saying, well, we have some solutions, but the trials that we do on them says it's, they, they, they're not hugely effective and they're actually quite expensive. And, and to get people educated to perform them is, is also tricky. So, so there is a little bit of a mismatch in terms of, of the needs and, and the supply. And, and that's where I think we have a strategic opportunity um, if we approach it intelligently. But it's a, it's a big strategic push. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, that was, uh, <laughs> that was a little introduction of, of, my, of my stance. Yeah. Um, yeah, so you were speaking at the uh, Danish baby wearing conference the other day as well, weren't you? Um, I didn't get to listen to it, so it was in Danish. Um, what, was, what were you talking about there? Well, um, basically uh, some of the things I've been referring to in this talk. Um, and um, I'm also quite intrigued and because I have to be in my position quite intrigued with uh, some of the animal research that's being being done uh, to to show what actually how what uh, what step does it leave on the on the genetic expression on the um, on the stress regulation capacities of, of of the animals when there's less or more contact uh, you know, even variations, if they just wean the animals a bit prematurely, we see very, very strong differences in the lifespan of how they react to stress. Um, so, yeah, so I was also referring to some of the animal research, and then I was showing some of the studies that we have in humans on how does, um, when you have a control group, uh, in one case they're given a car seat and the other group is given a, a, a baby carrier, and, and they measure the quality of attachment one year later, and then they see that the control group, and this is a um, group of high-risk women, uh, they see only about 40% of the, of the children have a secure attachment. Whereas in the group that had uh, the carrier and thereby had more contact, it's, it's, it's around 80% that have a secure attachment. So, yeah, so just, you know, giving a little glimpse uh, in the hour that I had, um, <laughs> into some of the research so that this also the, the Danish community can feel uh, empowered in, in what they're doing from their often uh, female intuition that this is good. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Okay, so something that Ulrika wanted to discuss with you um, was about attachment and baby wearing and carrying when physical closeness feels overwhelming. So would like to hear your thoughts on 
Yeah. On that. Yeah. No, I mean, I probably um, when it really struck me uh, was when I was uh, visiting a Danish private midwifery clinic where their clients are all sort of what we call the spelt mothers, uh, meaning, I mean, yoga, organic food, and uh, I mean, taking very good care of themselves in that sense. And and I introduced um, the kids for three weeks old. I introduced baby carriers to them, and and it looked from the reaction of the children, which were very uh, very dramatic in a sense that you know the, the, these infants just looking at the mother for a minute and a half, completely like almost bewildered, flustered. I said, "You, you're the one who's doing all this feeding and all this." Like really, a strong moment of meeting. And after that minute, uh, or two minutes of, of that sort of very strong meeting, you could just tell the whole body tone of the children just, ooh. And, um, you know, they were three weeks old, so there's, there's a limit to how long they can stay in the quiet alert state. Um, and then one week later, I saw the same mothers, and they were all back to pramps and just not, not, not at all engaging in, in baby wearing, even though it was so bloody clear. Um, so that got me like, wow, if even this particular segment of the population, if they're not able to, you know, after I've given them the, the scientific evidence, after they've seen it with their own eyes, after it's recommended by the midwives uh, in the clinic, they, yet they still don't do it. That's really what, what I, when I, you know, started looking into, I mean, might we be up against a chicken and the egg um, or the hen and the egg, I guess it is. Chicken. A chicken yeah. and the egg. Well, I didn't know that chickens yeah. could lay eggs. I thought it was hens that could lay eggs. Anyways. Yeah. Anyways. But, yeah. Um, so, what comes first? And and uh, and it's, it's been quite a revelation to read that Mary Ainsworth, who is one of the pioneers of attachment theory, who, uh, after about 40 years of work, is able to uh, differentiate um, the different attachment styles at the year round, year one, uh, in, in, in infants. That, you know, when she was doing the home observations of the particular sample that she was investigating, she also uh, noticed uh, and, and noted the, uh, the mother's capacity to engage in contact. And, and she saw clear links that, you know, here she is, uh, and her colleagues taking these notes, and she's some of the mothers. Uh, really looked like they were very uncomfortable in providing what you call affectionate touch, and um, and 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 others again were were sort of clumsy and they tried their best but they they just weren't very good at it, and it, yeah, uh, so 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 slightly different degrees of uncomfort uncomfort or discomfort in engaging with it, and then actually then when she tested the children in her paradigm the strange situation. Well, that particular type of touch behavior predicted whether the children would be insecurely or securely attached. So, um, and uh, Mary Main later, uh, who's, who, who then went on to measuring the adult attachment through the adult attachment interview, uh, also did uh, investigations in mothers that she could see were poor at providing affectionate touch and, and ventral to ventral, tummy to tummy contact that um, she asked them, you know, what are your recollections of the touch experiences you have with your own mother? And, and they, virtually all of them said that it was, it was very poor what I experienced. So, um, and that, you know, if, if there's one particular good reason for, uh, for why baby wearing consultancy needs to exist, it's to overcome this this challenge uh, and and I don't think we're even at the beginning of understanding um, the magnitude of this problem because mostly the parents that have sought the help of baby and consultants are people who inherently want to carry mm. yet if if our goal is to be in in you know in in medical settings and meet all the parents we will meet those roughly 40 percent 50 percent of the parents who also depending on where we are and then you know if it's a high-risk community it'll probably be a very hard high percentage that have insecure attachment mm -hmm. and what do we do with those parents um, 
I don't have any good answers at the moment, uh, regrettably. And and I keep on saying this is something where we 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 need research on that, but we also need clinical experiences to to inform the research. At the moment, one of my hunches is perhaps uh, a less confrontational type of touch, but mm. perhaps just simply holding the child's hands and and. But, you know, I fear that sometimes, because it's so easy for the baby and consultants and so natural, I'm, I am honestly a bit concerned that they may not get, how can you not feel the way I feel about engaging in contact? How is that, you know, what kind of, no, they don't say it, but what on earth? Yeah. Uh, and, and there's even the, yeah, go ahead. Sorry, yeah. I was just going to say that, yeah, I think that that is something um, that is prevalent within the community is that um, baby wearing is kind of seen as a, a fix-all fix kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and yeah, there's a, I guess this is why we're, we're asking these questions about, you know, when, when actually it, it might be too overwhelming for some people. Exactly. No, but yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, uh, it, yeah, it's, 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 that's probably also why I, in my lectures over the years, really have tried to get across these ideas of, of insecure attachment and, and secure attachment because it's, um, I don't, I mean, I, you know, there's no analysis of, of the attachment uh, quality of baby wearing consultants. Uh, some, some may be engaged in baby wearing uh, as a way to do it much better than what they found they were exposed to as, as children. Um, which is great, and and they obviously have gotten to the other side of overcoming whatever was in them to to not feel comfortable baby wearing, um, and others may just you know, uh, yeah. I mean, it's it's a fine line. I I don't want to sort of portray that baby wearing consultants don't have empathy, but it's you know, it's 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 when you deal with somebody who's got trauma, there there is this phenomenon of of, of called transference, and you know it it actually spreads to you this feeling of deep uncomfortable and, and you too will feel comfortable when you're there and it's, it's it can really fluster, uh, fluster the consultant. Um, so I, that's that's something I, I think we, first of all, I mean, we need more clinical experience, but we also need research. I mean, if you were to take a hundred mothers, uh, maybe even middle class mothers and give them carriers and show them how to use them, explain them all the the marvelous uh, benefits of baby wearing. Um, the open question would be how many would actually do it, and we do actually have some research in that. Um, an Italian study looked at uh, baby carriers as a breastfeeding intervention yeah. uh, in um, in you know middle class mothers, and there you could say they're you know low risk, but they did make the point the authors, and then we're back to midwifery that a very high proportion of the mothers had cesareans, uh, which could, of course, uh, make it uncomfortable to carry in, in the early, uh, in the early uh, months of, of, yeah. So, but, but you know, they found, uh, as far as I recall, it's about 70% of the mothers in this uh, low-risk sample were able and, and wanted to use the carriers for at least an hour a day. And that, uh, compared to the control group, group, control group that was not given carriers, um, had, they had much better lactation outcomes. But it also told us something interesting is that 30% that of the mothers did not use the carriers, mm. which probably, you know, a rough estimate of a low-risk sample, uh, you know, equates the proportions of secure and insecure attachment. Yeah. So, so we do have some, re, you know, suggestive research, so to speak, that, that says, mm, no, not 100% is going to use a carrier, even though they are, it's given to them and so on. Yeah. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, so that was that was interesting. Thank you. <laughs> um, another thing that we are interested in is attachment beyond the first few years. Um, obviously, in the baby wearing community, we are very focused on the first few years of life and um, um, helping to foster secure attachment and focusing on slings and carriers uh, but we would like to explore a little bit further what happens 
once once we finish baby wearing and uh, how how to ensure that um, any secure attachment that has been made continues um, you know beyond beyond the first few years I was at the uh, World Association of Intermittent Health Conference in maybe 2012 in Cape Town and uh, there was a professor uh, Arnold Samarov who I think was also the past president of the Society of, of Child Development Research and he said if there is um, if there's one uh, term that describes uh, the nature of human existence and also in terms of attachment it's discontinuity and uh, I thought wow I you know okay I mean and he's basically saying life keeps on being an open window for for so to speak um, overcoming um, past insecurities and that's of course a quite powerful message um, the you know one of the problems that besets attachment theory is that it's a relatively new science um, and so we don't have a lot of you know really lifespan uh, um, longitudinal studies but there is there are a few and uh, uh, one of the ones that I have quite quite a lot of trust in is the Minnesota longitudinal study which was uh, initiated by Professor Alan Schrauf from the University of Minnesota and I have to say tell you honestly I'm actually just in the process now of reading up on, on their findings but but they also see uh, a fair amount of discontinuity so even the children that they uh, measured attachment quality on some 30 35 years ago um, if now if they are now in a relationship with somebody who uh, has a secure attachment and who supports them it it seems that they are able to overcome their own negative past and actually uh, transfer uh, secure attachment onto to their own children despite their early insecure attachment so there there are uh, probably more um, more uh, should we say openings to to revert an insecure past having said that um what has been shocking is is a study that actually came out in 2013 that I was only acquainted with recently where they looked at how does the uh, early attachment quality predict uh, disease and that's that that is interesting because they found that um, that the the, the the adults who some 30 years ago were uh, characterized as insecurely attached that when they measured uh, the incidence of, of, of any disease and also inflammatory diseases sort of separately mm -hmm. the risk was around four times higher if you had an insecure attachment when you were uh, around 12 to 18 months um, and that's also what they are the, what I see the, the the researchers of the Minnesota longitudinal study saying it's it seems that there are conti continuities in some domains of, of human life and in others not at all mm. um, yeah so it is it is a complex picture but you know this thing that that the early attachment would predict um, should we say a higher vulnerability to disease it certainly ties into some of the animal research I was referring to before where if the if the um, if the rodent offspring has less than you know naturally ecologically valid uh, expected uh, provisions of touch from their mother I mean wow that really affects their stress resilience and and then translates in in, in one particular study into very deep ulcers uh, during their uh, teenage years or puberty years and also their, their early adulthood and um, well that's kind of what we're seeing in the Minnesota study so um, yeah so mm, I'm, I'm uh, yeah but, but 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 you know I, I think what the takeaway message is is that like you know early attachment is not the end all uh, plenty of windows to correct things if they didn't go well for whatever reason um, but on the other hand uh, it does seem that it, it does um, it, it, so far we can see from from the studies that it does seem to affect some domains rather negatively 
which means we should do all we can to, to make sure those early years are good. Yeah. Um, yeah. Having said that, uh, there, there is something which I, perhaps being a, a man, um, which I find uh, quite refreshing is as a strong um, or an increasing emphasis on on play um, as a um, what you must say as a promoter of, of secure attachment and as a developmental path and as a way of being with children and um, yeah that's you know, many people live busy lives and, and, you know, they find that getting through the everyday, so to speak, you know, eight hour work and maybe uh, then getting back and from work and you're tired, you come home. It's not so easy. Um, yeah. Um, I, yeah, how to, how to phrase it? Because, you know, in the end, you should not give parents even more uh, bad conscience that they already have but 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 children as as I've now experienced for you children also I mean they have such a you know they have such a lust for life and they really want to they really want to play and um, yeah um, yeah let's leave it at that for now yeah <laughs> yeah so <clears throat> excuse me as you were saying um, that attachment can change over the years, um, obviously for the better or for the worse. Um, it's something that is is quite an interest of mine, actually. And I'm reading a book at the moment. I've nearly finished it, but um, it it's basically saying the same kind of things. That um, you know, there there is a certain amount of plasticity to attachment styles. Um, and that I don't have the um, <clears throat> the citations for it. I've just written down the statistics. Uh, but uh, I think a, a study has found that around 70 to 75% of adults retain the same attachment style that was formed um, as, as children, but 25 to 30% change. Um, um, yeah, so it's I've, I I do find it interesting how um, the your attachment can change, and obviously uh, major life events can change it. But also um, being being in certain relationships with certain people um, can impact on on your attachment style. So this book. Um, it's it's focused more on romantic relationships, but I find it quite interesting because it can be applied to all relationships in in life. Really, um, it's just the the focus of the book is is on romantic relationships. But um, so, what's the name of the book? Oh, yeah, it's called Attached: The New Science of Adult Attachment and How It Can Help You Find and Keep Love. So it's by Dr. Amir Levine and Rachel Heller. Um, yeah, so, so something that they they are driving the point home about throughout this book is that um, it's very interesting that if um, an insecure attachment person is in a relationship with a securely attached uh, person, then it can help make them more secure. But mainly um, the anxious attachment style rather than the avoidant. Um, there's there's kind of a focus in there that the avoidant attachment style is kind of the worst, yeah, kind of thing. Um, That's actually quite interesting because. Um, because the ambivalent attachment or the anxious attachment style is is comes about when uh, most often when the parent is what we what we would say is inconsistently available, uh, which makes the child insecure whether the, the primary caregiver, the mother or the father, or both of them, will be there when the child needs it. 
but the uh, decisive difference to the avoidant attachment is that the avoidant um, is consistently rejected physically, so to speak, whereas the other ones is occasionally uh, allowed in. And, and the anxious attachment doesn't only reflect uh, an, an, um, an inconsistent caregiving style. It can also be that there were major uh, separations that uh, fundamentally disrupted the child's faith in, in the parents, actually often through no fault of the parents, but perhaps uh, a forced separation through hospitalization or some other thing. But it, it really can, and that's the thing, I mean, children are far more perceptive than most people think. So, so that can really put a, a level of anxiety into them. Can I count on my parents? But the fundamental difference is that, that the anxious people, they did have a measure of contact, uh, whereas the avoidant ones really were fundamentally physically rejected. Mm-hmm. So uh, it makes sense that they will be very hard to crack uh, from this partner who's trying hard to, mm-hmm. to, to solicit a warmth and empathy. So yeah, it makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, it, it was also saying that um, anxious and avoidant ones are basically, literally, the worst combination. <laughs> sure. Because the 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 thing about somebody who's got an anxious or ambivalent attachment, same thing, so to speak, uh, is that you know they they are fundamentally insecure that the other person would be there and so on. So, the, so they, you know, they are clingy, so to speak, and and you know, and they want emotions. And is there one thing that the avoidant one is incapable of? It's it's of showing emotions and and empathically responding to those needs. So, yes, that does sound like a match made in hell, and uh, it's it's probably relatively common. Yeah, yeah. It's, you know, it's also. <laughs> um, this is the thing that has been really taking me some time to understand, but it's only because I've seen it in, in some social surroundings of, of mine in Denmark, that uh, attachment has to do with the close relations. So you can have somebody who can be an absolutely charming person and be quite social and so on, uh, and, they, and, uh, and they can have an avoidant attachment. Um, but it's not really expressed in those you know, normal everyday work environment and so on. Uh, but but when it comes to the to the close uh, relationship, then you really see it, um, and perhaps that's way of of nature sort of safeguarding societies from not collapsing entirely. That when it doesn't get so to speak too close to us, then we can function and but so on. But when it's the real thing, ooh, that's a whole different story. Yeah. Yeah. So the this book it, it interests me um, because I want to learn more about um, attachment beyond the initial years but um, it kind of it can reflect back to the early years as well in my mind in the sense that we it it doesn't really get talked much about the fact that we as parents attach to our children as well Mm -hmm. it's a two-way thing it's not just the child (laughs) so you know and these you know what what they're speaking about in this book can um, shine a light on you know our our relationships with our individual children um, in terms of how how they are attached but how we are attached to them as well um, so I feel like it kind of gives gives some insight into that but also into um, platonic relationships as well um, you know, the the closer you are to someone, um, the more you you're going to kind of see see these um, styles, maybe, um, and you know, and we attach to other people as well. So it 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 really fascinates me because um, it kind of gives a lot of answers uh, to all sorts of relationships in life um, and how. Um, you know, being in in any sort of relationship with anybody mm. can impact on your own attachment style as well. So, you know, as a securely attached person, um, if they're getting close to somebody who is avoidant or anxious or whatever, can actually impact on 
their own attachment. Yeah, it's yeah. it's just lot, lots of sure. really interesting things. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, but it's <laughs> parallel research. I mean, this this whole thing of the sort of speak the the spirit of the family, which you know is probably primarily generated by the mother and the father, if it's a if it's a heterosexual relationship, but. Um, um, it, as parallel research was done on, on kindergartens uh, by a professor in Vienna called Liselotte Arnott. Um, and, um, and they were looking what predicted in a kindergarten uh, whether it affected the children's attachment security. And, and uh, you know, they had perhaps a hunch that it was uh, you know, quite individual ties to, to the caregivers. In the in the kindergarten, but but actually, um, even if there was quite a, a high staff turnover, uh, the kids could still uh, feel very secure about their, their kindergarten, and and it actually came down to to the ambience, to the emotional mood of the kindergarten, uh, which was you know which was probably the result of the of the leader setting a tone, but also of the of the uh, aggregate <laughs> attachment security of the of the pedagogues, but the but the atmosphere, and so the kids are. Yeah, I mean, they are, they are, of course, extremely aware of what's going on around them. And they pick up on these things. And just like the rest of us, if we sit with people who are <laughs> not very nice to each other, we, you know, it, it gets to us. It, it, gets, it sits in our stomach. And for children, it's, it's even, even worse. Yeah, but, um, yeah, but, you know, I'm involved in an initiative here in Denmark. Uh, we call it Pregnancy Dialogues. I've been working with it for almost five years now in, in Denmark and we're just starting out with fathers now also and uh, you know what I've seen in the past uh, acquaintances in my social circles is that you know for a mother to experience her father not investing himself emotionally into into their children I mean in Denmark that's uh, that's a very frequent cause of, of divorce because the mothers you know they don't need their money and they just can't take it um, so, you know, I, I, so the question is, you know, how do you, you know, let's say, I mean, you know, the, the numbers are around half of the adult population will have an insecure attachment. And so there will be a fair amount of couples where both of them have insecure attachment of, of some sort. And at the moment, our approach is to say, well, if we can get them during pregnancy, both of the partners, and if we can somehow or another, well, essentially, you know, life is a um, is a, a struggle or a dynamic between what I would say fear and and love, uh, and and in terms of behavior, that's expressed in either approach, getting close, or avoidance, which is obviously fear, and um, and we see that very clearly also in mothers who have lost children previously due to miscarriages, that their capacity to engage emotionally in the unborn child is really uh, can really be fundamentally influenced by those experiences so it's fear basically taking over where there should be love and curiosity towards the child so we try with that six session intervention to to create a a frame of um, where they can talk about these experiences but also some some rituals we have and 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 shaping of bonds between groups of there are four women maximum in the groups um, and to and to yeah, and to get them into uh, get you know which we say overcome the fear enough so that they start opening their heart to their child, have a curiosity, and maybe allow themselves to feel joy about the the child that's coming. Um, and and we hope to do that with the fathers also, and perhaps that you know using the child as a bit of a, as a lever to open up for perhaps that avoidantly attached father or avoidantly attached mother. Uh, because the child, and that's something I've learned from, I took the so-called the newborn behavioral observation course with the Brasselton, uh, or Brasselton, I never know how to pronounce that, Brasselton or Brasselton um, Institute. Um, and and they, they have one um, tenet which I really appreciate, and that's uh, never forget to include the child in any intervention you do to improve the capacity of the parents and that comes from you know decades of experiences that if you through the approach of the uh, newborn behavioral observation if you sort of are able to 
to have the child demonstrate uh, their capacity to engage that it's like it's like a, a light goes off in the on in in the parents where they realize wow there's a person there and it just changes their entire perception um, so uh, so at the moment my my approach or our approach here is is to try to to open up for those very important uh, emotional uh, yeah emotional capacities of parents is 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 through the the up in the coming child so to speak mm? yeah yeah that's it's really interesting i mean um it it makes me wonder how with with these in, interventions that you're doing how um how how it impacts on the the mother at the moment that you're focusing on um where, whether it impacts her attachment style when the interventions are in place right. whether you know whether the relation the close relationship with the child yeah. helps them in any way in terms of their attachment mm -hmm. do you have any yeah, we we don't really have research on it, but um, but certainly we can see that it, it ruins a marriage if if one of the two parents, but but often the father, if he doesn't engage, that can simply kill a marriage. And and when they are when they do become engaged, I mean, the mothers just the, the mothers will often you know it it just opens up their heart because because it's a you know it's a, it's a, what you must say it's the biggest contribution of a woman is often her children even though that may not be a popular statement to make in these feministic times but uh and i'm willing to discuss it yeah I've, i'm willing to discuss it but but i you know i think once you've had the child i think for most women you know that's that's what what would be on the top of their minds for for every day for the rest of their lives uh, unlike their work which they can uh, lay off but with the children, the you know the, the the thoughts and the worries and the joys will, will just never disappear. Um, so so to find that the the partner that they chose to to create that child that that person has a similar uh, attitude towards this child that uh, that is just such a game changer. So I think, yeah. Um, but we 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 can see that um, the little that we have seen is that uh, it. Going through these reflections during pregnancy about your own upbringing, you know, even discussing what was your relationship to your own parents, and and you know, often it's, it'll be the first time that people are asked those questions and really reflect on them. Um, you know, that leads to often they, they they go home to their their spouse or and or partner, and 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 take up these questions, and it opens up for a lot of uh, very important discussions that bring them closer in that sense, and that's you know that's often the Therapeutical approach is to uh, a bit like uh, what happened in South Africa after the apartheid regime was 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 um, had come to an end, and and they did what was these truth and reconciliation, and in many ways I think that's that is certainly one pathway to overcoming a negative attachment past is finding out what actually did take place, and. Um, and you know that may sound easy, but some of the some of the things that people will have to come to terms with can be, you know, horribly hard to to realize that you know, uh, yes, my mother actually she really didn't want me, and um, for various circumstances I was utterly unwanted, uh, or my or my father left to never see me and and never paid any. I mean, and even if people grow up with their parents, it can still be a fundamentally frigid environment uh, in terms of yeah and and um, and the trick is that probably the, these sort of nice upper middle class and middle class families where everything looks fine because uh, again attachment is about close relationship it's not how that they are pillars of society and they do well and they're entertaining and they're this and that but it's it's how and and that is and you know but if <laughs> You know, when you do the adult attachment into you, uh, there is one category, uh, they completely idealize their, their, the childhood they had and their parents. And when they ask to find examples of that glorious uh, childhood, somehow or another they just can't come up with an example. And that's the avoidant attachment. So, um, you know, it's my... Um, it's it's somehow or other it is rather painful to confront uh, this this past 
and people are not going to do it spontaneously unless there's an occasion for it. And and we are now at the moment in via these pregnancy dialogues making pregnancy the occasion. And and luckily it's it's not a in that sense uh, what should we say? It's not how do we say it's not insurmountable. It, for some of the participants, it is tough to to actually look at it. But on the other hand, they also know that that parent or those parents who let them down will now be the grandparents, mm-hmm. and they and they have a need to have these people in their lives. So there's also a little bit, you know, there's the birth will come, and there's a there's an urgency to get the house in order before the child arrives and to sort out these relationships and perhaps even take some conversations with the parents if need be. Um, so it's it's very intense work that's being done there, but it's it's being done in that framework of four women being together and, and going through the in many cases the same same hoops. So um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. So we've we've been talking for a long time about this, so we need to kind of wrap it up soon. Um, but there's there's a couple more things that I wanted to mention and briefly discuss. Um, something interesting from the book um, that I'd I'd never considered before because I I'd never heard about it is that um, a small percentage of people actually have a mixture of attachment styles that they don't necessarily fall um, squarely into one category and that that's just a, a thought that came up because I, f- I found that quite interesting um, so I don't know if you've kind of come across that before. Mm, I, I know that there are what they call subtypes to the uh, different uh, main attachment styles being secure, uh, insecure avoidant, and insecure anxious. Uh, and then there's, of course, also uh, people where, who have unresolved trauma. Um, but what you're saying is that what? That in some uh, circumstances, a person will be perhaps um, anxiously attached, and in, in other circumstances, they'll display sort of an avoidant attachment. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, yeah. I think that, that, was, that was the takeaway from it, was that... Um, that so a very small percentage of people display display traits from two or more mm-hmm. of, of the attachment styles, which I found really interesting. Um, now you're kind of touching upon a, a question that is in many ways still unanswered is because, you know, a child will actually be already, uh, I think, back in the 80s, was it, I think it was Mary Main and some colleagues, they looked at, you know, can a child have... Uh, a different uh, quality of attachment to uh, her mother and her father. And they found, yes, at one year, my God, they know that uh, the father, yeah, I have a secure attachment with it because he's always there, and, but the mother, no, or whichever. But um, no, so so it's extremely specific to, uh, to, the, to the type of caregiving a, a child would receive. So I'm just wondering, you know, if what you're mentioning may be an expression of that a child grew up with um, you know different two different attachment styles and 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 depending on the situation it's either that or the other that's then expressed I wouldn't be surprised if that's the case yeah yeah it's something um, I do want to look further into but I found it really fascinating yeah um, so the the last kind of thing that I wanted to briefly discuss is the potential genetic predisposition to a certain attachment style. And again, going back to the book, this is um, something mentioned in there. And I think there's a study also referenced in there, which I forgot to pull out, um, showing that there there can indeed be um, a genetic predisposition to forming a certain attachment style. And, um, you know, in, in some cases, and this was a discussion I was having with, um, with a UK colleague and two, um, I think, consultants from, from Norway uh, the other day at the, the conference, was that 
what you know with with some people and children and what have you um nature kind of overrules the nurture side of things you know um and that you know if if you're giving these children um all all of the the contact needs and meeting their needs um consistently uh, some some children don't seem to form a secure attachment, even you know if you if you're doing all the right things. Yeah, I mean, um, I can only answer from from what studies I have, have read so far, and there's two sort of responses to that. One of them is uh, is there's a professor Jay Belsky who he calls it a differential susceptibility to rearing environments and uh, I actually just saw him present in, in Rome here in May last year in 2018 again um, and his idea is that hey, uh, as a way to hedge the beds nature uh, produces uh, the, the majority of the children as quite resilient uh, in the sense that uh, even if the parents are pretty sh sh shabby uh, or if they're very good the outcomes are pretty much the same. Uh, so they have a low susceptibility to rearing conditions, so to speak. Whereas uh, a smaller group uh, is very susceptible to what takes place in their surroundings. So if they have um, abusive or not very caring or neglectful parents, they end up in a psychiatric asylum. Whereas if they have uh, good and nurturing parents, they end up uh, doing absolutely stellarly. So, um, and he's saying that's evolution's way of hedging the bets that most of them, you know, the unpredictability of, of, of life, uh, that they're fairly immune to that. Uh, but then we, we take some which, you know, if things go well, they can do really well. Mm -hmm. If things go wrong, well, then they're wasted, so to speak, speaking rather harshly. Mm -hmm. um, so that's, that's one way of, of looking at, at how susceptible children are to the rearing conditions. The other one, I, you know, I, I, there has been some work on, on what they call long and short alleles of, of, uh, of uh, genes that code for serotonin. And, um, and there it's what they find is that, um, uh, that actually the nurturance can overcome uh, even a sort of a negative genetic disposal uh, so that they turn out just fine. Um, but if they are, if they have uh, two combinations, if they have the negative gene variation for serotonin, and they also have, don't have a positive uh, rearing environment, then that really goes bad. But uh, so we and we see the same in cross-fostering studies with uh, with these uh, rodents that have uh, some mothers licking room a lot, mm -hmm. and that actually programs the stress response of the offspring, and others far less. So if you take the offspring from the bad rodent mothers and give it a few ones to the high uh, licking and grooming mothers, uh, then you can see that uh, they change very quickly as a result of the nurturance they were given. Um, so, so this thing of, of whether there are some children exist that, uh, that even if you did all the right things, um, you still see, uh, you still see children having should we say behavioral or even psychiatric issues? Um, I I don't know that I've seen a lot of research on that, but but that opens up for you know perhaps yeah um, yeah but that's the, now we sort of go sort of slash spiritual slash psychology. I mean you know I've I've met people who. Um, who fundamentally felt never, never felt loved by by their mothers and never felt seen, uh, and this is you know normally middle class people that have had good careers and so on. But inside of them, there is a just a feeling of of of, of fundamental neglect because and they, again that's the the fear and or the or the love axis of the mothers. The mothers, for some reason, maybe they had previous children and they learned to open your heart is very painful to your child, so they decided to close it out of self-defense, 
um, and that kind of invisible wounds, because, you know, hey, where's the trauma, where's the beating up, where's the this and that? It's not there. But, but the psychological, the spiritual climate that they grew up in, I mean, from all I've seen so far, it seems it can, I mean, fundamentally underpin uh, their development. Uh, so even if you do all the right things, mm. uh, which is, of course, why I'm, I'm so, um, should we say, oriented towards what we're doing in, in creating a, a, a positive spiritual climate for, mm. the, for the fetus to grow up in. Uh, so I am. I personally, I am quite. So, so I guess I do agree with you that that you know there are children where even though if you from the outside appearances do all the right things, they still don't do well. And at the moment, my hunch is that you know, deep psychological factors on the part of the of the mother, which also can have to do with the relationship that she's in. Because if she has her own uh, attachment uh, frailties from her own past, she has perhaps an avoidantly attached spouse who doesn't at all uh, so to speak accommodate her and, and escort her in her development during her pregnancy well then you may have the recipe for a disaster um, yeah 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 so yeah I think the takeaway from that is that we obviously do want to provide the best sort of environment for our children anyway um, even if it's not guaranteed that yeah. they yeah. will end up securely attached. Yeah, it's just exploring yeah, yeah. another side to it. Um, so the very very last thing um, that I wanted to mention was um, some interesting research. Again, I haven't written down which, which one it is, um, showing that different attachment styles can actually be very helpful um, to society um, in terms of how um, how differently attached people react in different situations. So off the top of my head, I think it was to do with um, um, being in, in a room of people and some kind of threat was um, part of the, the experiment and the securely attached people, you know, were the ones who would be the, the least likely to actually realize that something was going on. And um, I think maybe it was the anxiously attached ones were the first ones to sense danger. And kind of it, it showed how um, the, the different attachment styles, even though you may not have the best one, you may help to contribute to the con the continuation of society, right. you know? Yeah, yeah. So. I, I think it's probably Marion uh, Michael Lancer, the Israeli researcher. He's, he's done a lot of that type of research. Yeah, and regrettably, I haven't read that particular article. Uh, it's on my to-read list because I thought that is an intriguing approach to attachment, uh, saying that it's it may not it may be personally uh, quite uncomfortable to be anxiously attached, but for the survival of the particular species. Yeah. Uh, well, that's a burden you're carrying. That's your role. Um, yeah, that's that's uh, that's an intriguing concept. Um, yeah. Yeah, I get. I kind of took away from that. Uh, it's kind of almost a comfort, in a way, um, that if you or your children or you know people who you love aren't so um, securely attached, then it's not. You know, completely hopeless, maybe. Yeah, um, I think there's so many lists that. I mean, if you are in a relationship, like I've seen some some people around me, you know, in a relationship with somebody, a man who's avoidantly attached and who just simply doesn't prioritize your child and doesn't open up his heart, I think you'll find little comfort that that's maybe good for the overall good. I think it'll still be, oh, yeah. it'll be unbearable um, in that sense, but. But yeah, I, I I must admit, I think just as intriguing as I find the concept, I think what I've seen the personal costs of 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 being in relationships uh, with people who have sort of uh, insecure attachment, they 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 really are they really are very high. Um, it's 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 I've met psychologists who say yeah, attachments are very good, but you know we need to look at the really heavy ones like like you know 
depression and anxiety, which is a different, you know, perspective on on the functioning of a person. And and I must admit, I I um, I, I disagree. I think uh, I mean the the pain from being together with somebody who's avoiding attached is, mm. can be very profound. Mm. Um, so. Yeah, um, I I think uh, sort of philosophically speaking, that probably gives some comfort, but but when you are in it, it, it still is is very painful. But it's yeah, I mean you know I you are a woman, and uh, if there's one thing women are better probably better than men, it's 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 being feeling guilt about what you're doing and, and not doing and how well you have done it, um, and. And and perhaps there's a, perhaps there is an evolutionary reason for why men are a bit somehow or other tend to take it less personal. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, what am I what am I heading at here? Um, yeah, no, but I you know maybe the takeaway message is it's you know no matter. You know, we all we all have circumstances, and often they will not be ideal. And 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 we maybe marry somebody who is not securely attached through and through. Uh, but but the, I think the the positive takeaway message is that that life isn't a forever open window, mm. and and you know there is there's always a chance that things can be better. Um, and and in the end, the answer is love. Uh, yeah. Hmm? Great. Oh, <clears throat> I think that concludes the attachment side of things, so we'll leave that there. Bye-bye. Right.